This is when Mac Robb really decided he would make something of himself. He had to support his family. His father wasn't around. And so this desire to really help his family and build something from nothing drove his success for the rest of his life. The name Mac Robinson was still on the actual Cherry Ripe wrappers, even though Cadbury bought the company in the 1960s all the way up until 2002. It felt like a family, that you weren't just working for Mac Robb, you were working for something bigger. And certainly the people who worked for him loved him. And the public certainly loved him as well for his eccentricities and his, and his dress. And, and also he was an incredible incredible philanthropist as well. I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. In this episode, we tell the story of Australia's Willy Wonka, the eccentric chocolate king Macpherson Robertson. A marketing genius and shameless self-promoter, Robertson built his chocolate empire from humble beginnings. He started out making confectionery in the bathroom of his parents' home in the working-class Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy. And his company, McRobertson, became the biggest confectionery business in Australia by the year 1900. He created such beloved favourites as the Freddo Frog, the Cherry Ripe and Old Gold Chocolate. And he introduced Fairy Floss and Chewing Gum from America. Ben Oliver, a self-described history nerd, and the founder of Drinking History Tours in Melbourne, returns today to the podcast for part one in our series on McPherson Robertson. Welcome back to the podcast, Ben. Thanks. Great to be here again. So today we're talking about McPherson Robertson. He was known as Australia's Willy Wonka. Why was that? Yeah, so a really interesting eccentric character. Obviously, he built a chocolate empire to begin with, um, starting off in the basement of his parents' house in Fitzroy. But I guess the really the other strong connection with Willy Wonka was he was just a really eccentric bloke. He was known for wearing pristine white suits. Um, all his staff also had to wear uh, white uniforms to portray this image of cleanliness and wholesomeness. He was often seen driving through the streets of Fitzroy being towed by two white ponies. He would crowdsource uh, competitions. He'd uh, call for pretty young Australian children to be involved in beauty pageants. And he was also quite an innovator, much like Willy Wonka. He created some of Australia's now most well-known chocolate bars, including Old Gold, Cherry Ripe, uh, as well as the famous Freddo Frog. So the factory was in Fitzroy. What did it look like? Yeah, so uh, initially it was it was quite small. So, but by the late eighteen eighties, it's employed about two hundred people, and and then by the eighteen nineties, took up about three blocks and sort of fourteen, fifteen buildings. And uh, because it was all painted entirely white, uh, the locals nicknamed it White City, and it was quite a contrast against the rest of the streets of Fitzroy. Because at the time, Fitzroy had really entered a, a quite a, a bad period, starting from the banking collapse in the early eighteen nineties really all the way through to the 1970s. And so the rest of Fitzroy was not the most uh, salubrious place to live, quite grimy and dirty and criminal gangs. And then you kind of had this pristine uh, white set of buildings. Okay, can you take us back to the beginnings? Where did he found his empire? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, McPherson Robinson was born in the Ballarat Goldfields in 1859. His parents were Scottish and they moved from Scotland to Melbourne in chase of, uh, in search of gold. However, 10 years later, the father then decided to send the family back to Scotland and he went off to Fiji to try and get involved in, in a cotton plantation. Didn't go very well. And the family was quite poor during this period of time. And it's believed that during this period of penury, this is when Mac Robb really decided he would make something of himself. He had to support his family. His father wasn't around. And so this, this desire to really help his family and build something from nothing drove his success for the rest of his life. They eventually moved back to Melbourne in uh, 1874, and this is when a young Mac Rob uh, decided to get involved in the candy business. So he got some uh, work experience with a local confectionery company. 
And then in 1880, at the age of 21, he uh, launched his own uh, his own sweets company. He did this on the cheap. So he'd, he'd go around Fitzroy salvaging bits of scrap metal. And then he got this metal, brought it back to his parents' uh, basement. His, you can actually go and see the home if you like. It's uh, in Argyle Street in Fitzroy. And he created a bit of a makeshift workbench out of all these bits of scrap metal that he that he collected. And then he got a, um, a little tin cup, and this became what he used to actually uh, heat up sugar syrup, pour them into little casts, and this is where he'd make little uh, sugar animals. And so basically, Monday to Thursday, he'd work in his parents' uh, basement to make the lollies, and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, he'd uh, go around Melbourne trying to sell his wares. And how did the business grow from there? Yeah, so he just became really popular. So from starting the business in 1880, by 18, by the late 1880s, he now had 30 staff working for him. And then uh, by about 1896, there were more than 300 staff working for him. So he and his dad actually ran the business together, but it just grew and grew. And a lot of that grew from those personal relationships that he forged with shopkeepers back in the early days. And the product was, was very good as well. And I think we can thank McRobb for introducing some of our favourite treats, such as chewing gum and fairy floss. Yeah, so when he was in his early 30s, the business had already grown to be quite a successful company. And this is when Mac Rob decided to go on a bit of a journey uh, overseas to get ideas and kind of find out what the next innovation was. And he spent most of his time in America, which he nicknamed Colossus America, just because of couldn't quite believe how big the place was and the creativity and the ideas. And this is when he came back with two ideas. Um, cotton candy was the first one, and the other one was chewing gum. And uh, when he brought back chewing gum, it actually coincided with a, a period in Melbourne when people were going crazy for bikes. So there was this real bicycle craze in the early 1890s going through to the early 1900s, and everyone wanted to own a bike. And so he brought back chewing gum and he thought a good way to try and sell this to the public was to link it to, to cycling. And so all of his marketing materials around chewing gum promoted the benefits of, of chewing gum, that it would help cyclists. He also talked about it helping the indigestion and helping breath and, and to prevent you smoking and all these kinds of things. But um, he really closely tied it with cycling. He really got into cycling. He, he ended up launching a cycling school. He imported Monarch bikes from the U.S., People would ask him to come and perform at society events and garden parties, and and he and his crew would would arrive and they do stunts on bicycles, uh, including uh, men wrestling on a bike. I don't know how how you even do that, but um, just kind of fun stunts. So all these little side ventures he had, which were really all about promoting the business. And what are some of the famous chocolates that we would know today that we can thank McRob for? So the first one was in 1916, Old Gold, which is pretty much everywhere uh, now. So that uh, the dark chocolate, and that was probably the, the first one that he did that is now a real common household name, possibly linked to the, to the gold rush. We're not, we're not 100% sure. Then in 1924, this is when he launched uh, Cherry Ripe, which today is Australia's uh, third most popular chocolate bar behind the Cadbury Block. So still a very popular bar today with coconut, cherry, and of course, Old Gold uh, chocolate. It's believed he named this after an old 17th century British uh, poem. And a movie called Cherry Ripe had come out three years earlier. So the name was sort of well-known by the public at the time. In fact, the name uh, Mac-, Mac Robinson was still on the actual Cherry Ripe wrappers, even though Cadbury bought the company in the 1960s all the way up until 2002. And the other third chocolate bar that, of course, became very famous was the Freddo Frog, which he uh, opened in 1934. Interestingly, the Fredo frog actually wasn't meant to be a frog. Um, Mac Rob's initial idea was that it would be a mouse. A little cartoon uh, mouse had just been released a few years earlier, and Mac Rob thought he could try and tie it in, uh, given how popular Mickey Mouse was. But um, one of his workers, a guy called Harry Melbourne, um, who only passed away about a decade ago, who was an 18-year-old uh, working at the factory, actually spoke up and, and said to Mac Rob, I think that mums and kids might be scared by mouse. I reckon you should make it a frog. And so Mac Rob said, go away, I want you to make me a draft or give me an example. 
And he brought back the frog and he said, I think you're onto a winner. So they changed it to a frog and then that became the famous uh, Frodo frog. And something like 93 million Frodo frogs are now eaten every year in, in not just Australia, in the UK and other markets as well. Incredible. And so did McRobb have his own signature on all the chocolates that he produced back in those days? Yeah, definitely. So the company was called McRobinson's because McPherson Robinson um, is a bit of a mouthful. So you shorten it down to Mac Robinson and that was the name of the company. And yeah, he was a brilliant uh, marketer and brander. A lot of the stuff he did is now sort of textbook marketing. So even the Mac Robinson logo, which was in this beautiful calligraphy, was used by school children to practice their calligraphy quite commonly. Also, all of his rappers were very brightly coloured and, and he used uh, jingles and interesting slogans, which again sort of ties in with Willy Wonka. And many of these were crowdsourced from, from the public. He'd ask them to create jingles and then he'd end up using them uh, in his marketing. So he was quite a, a brilliant marketer. Are there some other examples of how he was an innovator as a businessman? Yeah, so um, the eight-hour workday is a good example. So the eight-hour workday started in Melbourne back in 1856 with the uh, stonemasons going on strike at the University of Melbourne Quadrangle. But the idea of an eight-hour workday wasn't really universally recognised and many businesses were still quite against the idea of giving their workers a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. But MacRob was quite a strong supporter of this. So in these early days of, of um, I guess, labour unions and these sort of things, he was actually quite a strong proponent of labour unions and, and of an eight-hour workday and a, a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. He actually uh, created his own employees' um, sick fund for, for people who were injured on the job or who were sick, which was, again, today, sick leave is something we all take for granted, but certainly at the time, something that was quite, quite innovative and, and very few companies gave their employees any sort of benefits beyond a job. So he must have been a very popular boss. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you sort of hear stories uh, from people who work for him, guys like Harry Melbourne. And, and he said that, you know, it, it, to him it felt like a family, that you weren't just working for Macrob, you were working for something bigger. And, and um, certainly the people who work for him loved him, partly because he probably paid them a lot better and looked after them a lot better. And, and the public certainly loved him as well for his, his eccentricities and his, and his dress. And, and also he was an incredible philanthropist as well. I wonder if he paid his employees partly in chocolate. Yeah, um, well, they say don't get high on your own supply, but um, I, I reckon if you're working there, you'd certainly um, get involved. My mum actually worked at an, at an ice cream factory when she was a kid, and, and they actually gave her all the ice cream she could eat as part of her, part of her salary. Now, you mentioned his philanthropy. Are there some specific examples you can give us? Yeah, so a couple of things. So first of all, he funded the 1929 and 1930 uh, Antarctic expeditions by uh, the very famous Douglas Mawson, who once featured on our $100 notes. Um, and for this, he was actually knighted in 1932. As his way of saying thank you, Mawson actually named a part of Antarctica after McRobinson. So if you go to Google, you should be able to see that now as um, part of it, um, McRobinson land. The big one, though, was in 1934 when Melbourne was celebrating its centenary and McRobinson donated £100,000, roughly the equivalent of about $10 million today, to a whole bunch of various works around Melbourne. He gave £40,000 to create the McRobinson Girls School, now commonly known as uh, MacRob, down at Kingsway and one of the most prestigious girls' school in, in the country. He also created the McRobertson Bridge going over the uh, Yarra River. Uh, he funded the creation of works in the Royal Botanical Gardens, as well as a fountain uh, near the Shrine of Remembrance. Now, we talked about how he jumped on the cycling craze in the 1890s, and this was also the era of the motor car arriving in Melbourne. And he, he was also an early adopter of cars, wasn't he? If it was fast or it flew, Mac Rob was on board. So, um, yeah, we mentioned bicycles before, but the first vehicle in uh, was imported into Australia in about 1897, 1898. And uh, Mac Rob was actually one of the first uh, people in Australia to own a motor car. So he bought one in 1902. 
However, uh, much like many people at the time, there wasn't really driving licenses or, or tests back in those days, and learning how to drive one was uh, done by uh, trial and error. And he was actually involved in Victoria's first road fatality in 1905, when he was driving around the streets of Fitzroy and actually struck a man who was taken to hospital but declared dead on arrival. An inquest into the accident found that uh, the man that Mac Robb had hit was drunk, and so Mac Robb was cleared uh, of all charges. Now, even though he was really into cars and bikes and planes, he was also quite the fitness fanatic. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So even up until his 60s, people described him as a fit young man because he had a daily exercise regime, uh, which he kept up all of his life. They say that even in his 60s, he could still jump a four-foot pole, which I guess was the benchmark for whether you were fit or not, as how high you could jump. But um, yeah, quite a nimble uh, man. And again, plays into the connection with Willy Wonka that, you know, that famous scene in Willy Wonka when he first comes out of the factory and he's holding his cane and then he sort of falls over and then does a somersault spring and jumps up in the air. Mac Robb was certainly a very agile, nimble bloke, even, even in his uh, later years. Was he pretty well respected in Melbourne at the time? Yeah, certainly. And again, getting back to the philanthropy, um, very well respected uh, by the people. And the government certainly loved the fact that he was funding a lot of the public ventures they probably would have had to have done themselves, but um, certainly well respected in, in society. And, and interestingly, uh, for a lot of people who have these sort of profiles, Mac Robb didn't doesn't seem to have that dark and nasty side, at least from the stuff that I've been able to find. He, he was married twice, so whatever problems happened there. But um, yeah, you just don't read a lot of negative stuff about Mac Robb. He just seems to be universally loved. And what happened to him and the company in the end? Well, he passed away in the 1940s and then control of the uh, family fell to his sons and then eventually grandsons. I guess the peak of the company's powers was really in the 1930s. And once Mac Robb was out of the picture, the company sort of underwent a bit of a, a slow decline until Cadbury then eventually bought it in 1967 and then eventually merged with Schweppes to become Cadbury Schweppes. And then from there, the company, its name was slowly kind of phased out. The last of its references was in 2002 with Cherry Ripe. But after that, most people have forgotten that McRobinson Steam Confectionery Works ever existed, which is kind of sad. Why do you think his name has faded into oblivion? I mean, we were talking about this before. It's not an easy one to remember, Macpherson Robinson. So it's partly because of that. Cadbury doesn't talk a lot about its heritage with the companies that it's bought as well. So uh, if you go to the Cadbury website and have a look at the chocolate bars, it's, it, they give very scant recognition. McRobinson wasn't the only company they've acquired over the years, but the history, at least from Cadbury's side of view, hasn't really been well told. So you really have to kind of go to some original sources to find out more about McRobinson. It's, it's such a shame because he's such an important part of not just Melbourne, but Australia's food industry. So um, it's something we should definitely talk more about. Can you sum up why you think he was such a significant character in Melbourne's history? Just that combination of philanthropy. I mean, he was described as Australia's Andrew Carnegie in the 1830s. Andrew Carnegie, a very famous US steel magnate in the in the 19th century and uh, donated lots of money to charity. And, and I think that in terms of a comparison, Mac Robb's probably one of those guys who's gone above and beyond philanthropy in the, in the 20th century as a businessman. Obviously, you know, being involved in chocolate is something everyone loves. And I think just the, the eccentricities and the interests and, you know, like he, he, something we didn't talk about besides all the other things that he did. He owned two Arab horses and he taught them tricks, how to shake hands, how to kneel. Um, one of them was called Sultan and he used to brag to people that Sultan was the finest educated horse in Australia. So I think just the, the combination of the chocolate, the eccentric ways that he went about his business, the brilliant marketing, and I think the incredible philanthropy just makes him a very interesting character. How fascinating. Well, thanks for joining us, Ben. Absolute pleasure. If you want to read more about McPherson Robertson, 
You'll find a link to a story and photos in the show notes to this podcast. And tune in to the next episode for part two in our series, when we talk to the curator of an upcoming exhibition at the State Library showcasing his extraordinary life. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, and produced by Peter Fuller. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you want to support this podcast and be notified when each episode comes out, make sure you hit the subscribe button. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winger? (laughs) Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Listener.